Brandon Jacob Jenkins writes some of the most challenging plays I've read and seen. When I sit in the theater at one of his plays, I laugh and I contemplate, and after it's over, I invariably wonder if I understood it correctly. That's partially due to the fact that Brandon's plays are each distinct in form, namely the framing of the story, the way it's delivered, is as important as the story itself. Adding to that, his plays at times weave in bizarre and puzzling elements. He is undoubtedly a playwright who makes the audience work harder and lean forward. Looking at his work collectively, you begin to see an overall structure. This is a writer who is fascinated by the history of storytelling, from the Greeks to the Middle Ages, and with an American drama from the Civil War through the 20th century. In our interview, we talked about how Brandon draws from old plays to examine how we experience the same themes today. Some of those experiences are tied to confronting symbols of racism that were once widely accepted. Their placement in his plays motivate the characters and the audience to question how we confront painful facets of our history. Brandon's plays, which include Neighbors, Appropriate, In Octoroon, Gloria, War, Everybody, and Girls, have won a host of awards, including the MacArthur Fellowship. Brandon's also a Pulitzer Prize finalist and a theater professor. Talking to Brandon was a pleasure. He is scholarly, perceptive, and genuine. We also nerded out a little bit on Tennessee Williams, whom we both love. In this interview, I was careful to avoid spoilers in discussing Brandon's plays, so some play descriptions are left intentionally broad. If you haven't seen or read Brandon's plays, I encourage you to check them out. His work is challenging and worth the effort. This is my interview with Brandon Jacobs Jenkins. Hi, Brandon. Hello. Thank you for hosting me here. Thanks for having me. One of my favorite things in a play is when things start out kind of weird and mysterious and confusing. And the audience has to be attentive to figure out how the story is going to take shape. It's like not quite clear. And I wanted to mention that to start because with your work, I am attentive all the way through. Does that mean it's I confusing think, all the way through? I think what I mean is <laughs> it's, it's mysterious until the end. And I, I find that I have to be a very present audience member and that you demand that your audience work hard. I really find that so much and I, I like that. That's part of what I like about theater actually as opposed to other visual forms. I think it demands a kind of hard work mm. that has a certain payoff. And I want to start by saying thanks for making your audience work for it. Oh my gosh. Maybe the first time I've ever heard someone thank me for that. But <laughs> I will take it. I will take it. So on that note, when an audience experiences your work, how much do you think about whether they are keeping pace with you as the narrative takes shape, particularly because your interest in the form of a story, how it's delivered, is so distinct from one play to the next? Yeah, I think I'm obsessively thinking about what an audience is, or I'm imagining what an audience member, hypothetical or otherwise, is thinking about, wondering, questioning in any given moment inside of a piece of theater that I'm working on. You know, I always think of plays as emotional experiences, which means that you're being 
brought through a series of emotions and affects and feelings and thoughts and being exposed to a series of things, not just one idea. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a time-based art form. Like I always kind of recoil when I hear people talk about how plays about something. Whereas I'm like, well, I think plays, the best plays are about many things. They're about how many things relate to each other. You know, they're yeah. about sort of sequences of, of emotions and things like that. So I am sort of very aware in the crafting of it just exactly what those things are I'm asking people to move between. Because you've talked a lot about melodrama being the, the experience of everyone feeling the same thing at the same moment, this sort of swell of emotion collectively. Mm-hmm. I wonder what would be the, the analog for everyone f- being awakened to an idea mm. at the same time. Like, oh, interesting. Oh, this play is about this. Yeah, I think that would still technically be melodrama. You know, melodrama um, at its heart, the philosophy of it is that all people essentially can be trained to feel the same thing together or think the same thing together. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think anyone who's ever sat through a melodrama, you know, can look around and see that that's actually not true. And that's, mm-hmm. there's something more interesting to me about th- that reality. I think, you know, you have someone like Brecht who felt he was operating in the opposite direction and that he created a whole theory around an audience's experience of being pulled out of their emotional involvement into right. a more cerebral place or self-conscious place together. So maybe that's sort of what you mean by mm-hmm. the antithesis of something going from pure affect into thought. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I think the experience of being in the emotion of a play and then suddenly being heightened to a different mental state mm-hmm. um, is something that I found very prominently in appropriate, your play appropriate, in that we see a family taking stock of a deceased father, of his life and of his belongings, some of which include very racist memorabilia. And as the family members are arguing and being angry with each other over who abandoned whom and uh, who led the family to this place of dysfunction, in my first reading of it, before I saw it actually, I started to realize what if this is entirely insignificant? And really what we're seeing is how racist imagery is dealt with when people lack the vocabulary or self-awareness to confront it. And I, now having watched Appropriate and reread it, I still am curious which play it is. That's wild. I mean, that's the most astute reading anyone's given me <laughs> to my face. Because that's truly what, you know, the play in some ways is about avoidance, right? Mm. It's about how people can kind of bend over backwards to not deal with something that's staring them in the face. And whether or not they're justified is, is something I leave up for an audience to parse over. Because how can you, how can we tell anyone how to deal with the many facts of our lives that present themselves to us? But yeah, there is this idea that people are dodging the obvious thing in the middle of the room, right? And it actually draws them into other pockets of their own mind or their own relationships to each other or their own histories. And that is very intentional. But it is still, I still believe that it's a play, given given that conceit is still in the vein of a family drama. You know, it still exercises the same muscles that a family drama does. There's just this weird object sitting in the room with you while you do that. Yeah. That those those things into relief. It's like a narrative magic eye. Kind of. Yeah. Well, that's the game of the title, right? What am I 
actually people to this day still ask me, is it appropriate or appropriate? And I'm like, it's both. Because of everything I've written, it's the most akin to like a musical score in that Mm. I have seen it. I've seen so many iterations of it that are spiritually so different from the other productions Mm. that it really does become this interesting game. I mean, talk about Magic Eye, that it really does wind up feeling very different just based on the personalities and energies of the people making it. You know, Mm -hmm. it's really wild. Like there's been productions that have played like a sitcom that were very successful. There have been like crazy post-apocalyptic feeling productions that feel like borderline, like I'll be on meth. You know, it's like really crazy. So it's been very, and it was just a production in uh, London this summer that that did quite well that I fully imagined... I was like, I can't, how could a British audience ever find its way into this story? Mm. But they totally found it. It was really, and their accents were pretty excellent. So, you know, it's been a very odd, Yeah. This, that play of everything I've written sometimes feels like the oddest, you know, mm-hmm. just because it never feels like the same river twice whenever, I, whenever yeah. I encounter it in production. Which is, I guess, a little bit unnerving for the writer, but. Um, like maybe, I mean, it's fun. Now it's fun for me because I feel like I've been very lucky with productions that, you know, the thing is when you have, when you have written a play and you get the production that you yeah. wanted, everything else is like gravy. You yeah. know what I mean? So, Well, partly why I, I continue to wonder if one story was meant to eclipse the other is because once I was aware of this magic eye effect, I couldn't unsee it, of course, and I mm. couldn't think about casual lines of dialogue as just being divorced from that. Mm. Yet... Tony, who's the eldest of the adult siblings, who's perhaps the most in denial about her father's wrongdoings or possible association with white supremacists, and it's sort of vague but left very dangerous. Okay. Yeah. She also speaks the most beautiful lines in the play about coping with death. Mm. And I thought, this beauty in this writing, it can't negate the the family drama that I think is also mm. taking place. Mm-hmm. So this is what I mean about you make me work hard. I mean, I guess my feeling about life is that it contains all those things. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. We're like alive every day in a political climate full of harmful abstractions and fictions, but we still have parents that we worry about. Hmm. We still have siblings we fight with. Life as a container contains all these levels, so theater should too. That's how I've always felt in Mm. some way. There's a distinctly racist image that we see in Appropriate Mm -hmm. that provokes a visceral feeling in the audience and even on the page. And I was thinking about that type of image in comparison to cartoons of minstrelsy that are present in your play, Neighbors, because both of those, both types of, of images and various types of racist imagery and or various bigoted images can cause an audience to laugh uncomfortably, laugh genuinely, or recoil. And when you have all of those in the theater at the same time, it creates something just viscerally all around you, which is part of the gloriousness of live theater. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering when that effect happens, what you are attuned to. If you're hoping for uh, a certain outcome. I I would imagine overall a genuine laughter would feel disconcerting. So Mm -hmm. what's the effect that feels Mm -hmm. right? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I feel very, I mean, this goes back to that question of what an audience is feeling at any moment, any moment in a play. I think for me, there's value in an audience hearing itself. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? Yeah. That as the person in the audience, you might become very aware of how you don't share. You know, laughter is so interesting because it's very revealing. It's a thing that we do. We don't really know why we do it. Mm -hmm. You know, it kind of happens automatically. We right. always know what a fake like, laugh sounds like. It's uncontrolled, but it, it does many things. It releases tension. It, you know, expresses um, like a solidarity with another audience. You know what I mean? And I think when we, this is why I, I get suspect of melodrama, right? Mm -hmm. Is that not everyone is feeling the same thing. And what does that mean, right? And what does that say about what a mob is versus an individual? And I feel like in the plays that you're talking about, especially in Neighbors, I was super, I definitely was like, I want people to hear how they might actually not be aligned in ways that they tell themselves in, in, in the light. You know, like theater is really this, someone I love says, you know, theater is just like a bunch of strangers go in the dark, they close the door and sit in the dark. And that's just all it is. You know, we all, whatever happens in that room is theater, but the, but the darkness allows you to have an experiment with yourself and what you think of yourself and how you, um, how you associate with people in your community, whether or not you know them, how you deal with strangers, yeah. how you think of yourself next to strangers. And so that idea of listening to the laughter is kind of realizing like, right, there are people in this room who feel differently than I do in this moment. And what does that mean? What does that say about me? What does that say about them? What does that say about us? How does that, what does that, what does that cost us yeah. to be in misalignment in this way? Because I think some of the laughter is certainly uncontrollable, but I think some is, it releases tension, but sometimes it's a coping mechanism sure. for tension. And I think because when people go to see a play, because it's an event and it costs money, sort of similar to going to see a comedy show, you come in wanting to have a, great time. Mm -hmm. yep. In the case of comedy, you want to laugh and enjoy yourself. Mm -hmm. In the case of theater, you want to experience mm -hmm. something. Yeah, you're removed. And so I often find in theater, unlike, let's say, a film, people are so generous because they want to have a wonderful time. Mm -hmm. So sometimes the opening scene, people are laughing and barely anything has occurred. Sure, yeah. Uh, so I wonder, with a play like Neighbors, how you felt about the laughter being a way to experience the experience of sitting in it. Yeah, I mean, you know, what, what you're saying brings to mind this idea of laughter as a performance of solidarity, right? Mm -hmm. That we sometimes laugh a little extra hard because we're, we're actually not, we're not talking to each other, we're talking to the actors. You know, yeah. we're encouraging the actors when we laugh sometimes. Like I love, one of my favorite things is when, um, when like something goes wrong on stage we always clap for the actor who fixes it, right? <laughs> yeah. Because it's like we 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 are applauding wit. We're applauding ingenuity. We're show. It's a hum, It's a very human moment. You mm -hmm. know, Brecht would always say that he loves a mistake because you see an actor thinking. You mm -hmm. know, that's that's what it's about in some ways. And so I think that there is this element of well, let's become aware. Of, I mean, there's also like to me a power dynamic in that, right? Where it's like like I, I kind of hate applause, though I understand why it's a valuable ritual. But I, you know, one of the hugest critiques I got for Neighbors is that you don't get to applaud for the entire ensemble at the end of the play. And that's what made everyone angrier than anything, <laughs> that the play doesn't really end, mm -hmm. you know? And but that's because I was saying, like, why, do, why should these people let you applaud for them 
you know, they're, they've been in blackface for the last five years, five years, five hours, really, <laughs> you know, um, what, why, why do, why do they need your applause if what they're going through is something so severe mm-hmm. for them? Which know? actually leads to my next question, which is how do you make your actors feel comfortable? Yeah, totally. I mean, that? well, I'm a, you know, we, it's so difficult to be an actor, you know, and it's, it's a, it's a profession that has been like since the beginning of time, a site of exploitation, you know, I, I very, I do not like certain directors who bully their actors. You know, I really believe that like, I, I first of all, I love actors. I mean, they're, they're, the, they're everything. You can't, you know, the actors are really the only ones who can mess up your play because you have to leave the room at a certain point and the show's theirs for six mm-hmm. weeks. And if they don't like you, they're going to do, they can, they can do whatever <laughs> they want. They can enact revenge inside of your play. So you really, you, I do encourage my students to always like invest in understanding what an actor is actually, what you're asking actors to do. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I try to make sure that the room I'm a part of definitely puts the actor's um, sense of security and safety and agency first because I have to trust them and it's trust me to make this thing happen. But I also have to acknowledge that, you know, when my work does contain elements that I think might be troubling for some actors, that that that's, we kind of, I really do use those auditions to make, sh- give them space to talk about their feelings. Because mm-hmm. if, if there's not a spirit of open communication and bravery, there's no, that room is dead. You're never going to get to anything truthful or grounded. That's what I think. And if you're being asked to perform a stereotype that feels so uh, diminutive, yeah. to feel like you are this actor putting on this role and you are respected for doing that work. Yeah, and, and like, I guess you're thinking about Neighbors, which is the, yeah. where this is, yeah. And those, those stereo, the game of that play is that the stereotypes actually have a ton of agency. Yeah. You know, and that they're, the actors are very much in control. Like there was a really funny moment during, you know, it had, this had this, it had this kind of controversial outing at the public and we had a talk back where this guy was like, why are all these people nude? And we had to say, you know, they're all wearing prosthetics, sir. Like, this is not, everyone here is fully covered. And actually, that was the trick of your mind that uh-huh. created that. But these actors are not, no one here is exposing themselves more than they are agreeing to, you know. And even in that situation, we know we had a huge back and forth about the theater wanted to take pictures of them. And I said, no, I don't want these actors to have to, first of all, we were originally doing what was supposed to be a workshop production. But it's like, these actors shouldn't have to be answering questions about this play because something's on the internet 20 years down the road. Right. You know what I mean? Right. That kind of empowerment of the actor feels essential, especially if you're asking them to participate in something that is risky. There's a video of you that I watched in which you describe how in your childhood home there were collections of different kinds of memorabilia, like colored-only signs Mm -hmm. in your home um, that were kind of displayed ironically. How did your perception of these symbols evolve through your childhood and into your adulthood? Do you feel like they've become more or less jarring over time? Well, I think that was my, that was the gift and curse of growing up around that stuff was that it wasn't, it wasn't, um, you know, I was able to encounter them as like matter, as like decor before I understood what their historical aura was. And that allowed, that sort of defanged them to me that made them very banal and made them very pedestrian. And mm-hmm. so I was able, I think, to investigate or research them with a bit of lucidity. I didn't have any baggage around them. 
I knew what they were very early. You know what I mean? Do you remember so, early conversations like, Mom, what's that about? No, I don't. I mean, I sort of knew that I knew, I mean, as early as I can remember, I knew what they what, what it was. I knew it was black memorabilia. I knew where it had come from. I knew that my parents both collected it. It was a part of our life, like our, our family, you know, history and lore. But I never needed to, um, I actually remember very early, my because my mom would occasionally give these, like schools would reach out to her and say, would you like let us tour your collection? Would you like talk to some students? Mm-hmm. And she'd bring, you know, kids over and talk through what some of the objects were. And it was like news to me. I was like, oh, that's interesting. That's what the original, um, like there's a, there's a character named Cornelia Kings who's actually the original mascot for Kellogg's cereal, the cornflakes. Okay. Before she was replaced by Tony the Tiger, you know. And I was <laughs> like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I always remember these, these anecdotes, but there was never a real, they never felt foreign to me. So it was not like I needed to have a period of being like, well, what is this? What does this mean? You know what I mean? Does that make sense? It's weird. It's definitely like a weird fact of my life (laughs) that has obviously like influenced how I approach history and the work that I make. You know what I mean? And very much impacts how you bring them into a story without maybe the kind of nervousness another writer would feel. I think so. And I think I just, I think it's about not, I'm not, I'm interested in those things that people hide, you know, and why they hide them, you know, because that was part of why these things were collectibles is that suddenly people took down the colored only signs and didn't know what to do with them. But my mother and my father were like, we'll take them. They were part of the community people who said like, let's preserve this history because it's important that these things aren't erased. You know, that these things are, you know, that they're documented. There's an archive. And that's sort of what, that's always what's at the heart of collection anyway, is archiving something. Definitely. And that feels so akin to the performers and neighbors sort of watching the audience, watching them, mm-hmm. and and the kind of awareness communally of we've taken part in making this a spectacle. Mm-hmm. It was all for public consumption. Mm-hmm. And if we're embarrassed about it and we want to take it down, yeah. let's figure out what, what comes in do. its place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there's something about that, too, that is about, you know, well, we just consumed it. How did that feel? You know, there's a kind of checking in about that and also an acknowledgement that we lived in an era where black artists did not invent minstrelsy, but it was a thing that was forced upon them in order to get to a place where they could stop wearing that. And that's an interesting thing to take stock of, that to, to like step into a shoe and be like, this shoe doesn't fit. And how mm-hmm. do we feel about the fact this shoe is, was even here? You know, mm-hmm. that's what it kind of, that moment feels like to me about... take a quick break and talk to you about financial wellness. The term wellness is often associated with meditation retreats and skin treatments, but really wellness just means health and stability, whether that's physical, emotional, mental, or financial. IFWA, the Institute of Financial Wellness for the Arts, is a company that is specifically dedicated to the well-being of artists, and their team of financial coaches and advisors are trained to help artists manage their money and plan for their futures. Because many artists are paid project to project, they don't always think about long-term planning. There's also that long-standing myth that because artists live to create, it somehow means they're not thinking about their finances. The advisors and coaches at IFWA are passionate about art too. That's why they're devoted to giving artists the tools, vocabulary, resources, and know-how 
to navigate their careers with confidence and manage their money in smart ways. And with IFWA, you can work with an advisor at no cost. All categories of artists are welcome. Musicians, actors, playwrights, designers, dancers, directors, and on and on. Check out the IFWA to reserve a meeting with a financial coach and ensure that you're on track for a successful financial future. And now back to the podcast. So the third play in this sort of trio Mm -hmm. um, in Octoroon, um, which is based on the Octoroon, which was written in the 1800s and depicts a complicated romance between a white plantation owner and a woman who is one-eighth black. And in your play, um, I believe you lift sections out of the original. Yeah, I basically did, did this like radical cut and I like condensed characters, but it's essentially... 90% of the original play in like a strange kind of mini form. Yeah. yeah. And two new parts, I believe. Um, one is the female slaves speak in a much dis- much more distinctly modern day today voice. Whenever, yeah, when they're alone. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the original play, it's about 25 slaves. And uh, their whole plot line is about how willingly they want to auction themselves off to save the white protagonists of the play. I see. That's so generous of them. Yes, totally sweet (laughs) and totally not believable to me in any way. And so my my response to that was to cut it mostly out of, initially out of just financial constraint, I wanted to boil it down to three people. And the story I send them on is related. It's a kind of a remix on that idea, but yeah. And then you have an alter ego figure who speaks to the audience about creating the play and creating... Well, two, two alter ego figures, yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. So what did you want the audience to experience by watching you create a play? Well, I always feel like I have to explain to people that it's not me, right? It's a character okay. who references me named BJJ. And then there's a character named Playwright. Yeah. And that the play itself is a strange negotiation between these two figures to um, to put on a play because BJJ's therapist told him to, right? Yeah. So there's actually like a funny, you know, I think the play is very obviously toying with the impulse that many audiences have to read an author into the work and to sort of assess oh, everything as a kind of political statement of an individual or something. Right, I and, see. So like, yeah. oh, the writer must believe this. Yeah, exactly. Whereas the writer in this play literally dies. You know, like there's there's like nothing that really, like one writer basically kills the other writer, but it's unclear if it's the play or if it's not the play. You know, yeah. it's a really, it's the, the, what I wanted to stage ultimately was I wanted you to feel an author dissolve into the work. Do you know what I mean? Uh-huh. I wanted to stage sort of, what I think is, you know, how to, it is a kind of bait and switch that sort of happens yeah. formally in that. But, um, but I think it also helps, I mean, that frame helps people. First of all, it gives context to Octoroon, which really helps them understand what's happening in it. Right. Um, but also it sort of helps me stage some important questions about authorship and identity and who gets to tell what story and why they get to tell it and, you know, what's at risk in, in that. And there also was the moment when BJJ says, 
coming up here is the moment when everyone feels the same emotion. Yeah, right. And I, I sort of appreciated how, just as you mentioned earlier in the interview, that that's almost impossible. Mm. But what then follows is a moment that is so overwhelmingly devastating that in fact the audience does. Mm. So it's sort of, you begin to subvert it and then you achieve it. I think. Do you mean the wall falling or do you mean... The image. The, oh, the image. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's weird. It's a, that play so... It's... <laughs> that play is so crazy. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, you know, a lot of the energy that plays about lowering, lowering. You know, that whole act is, like, lower expectations, lower expectations. Lower, you know, just keep lowering and lowering and lowering and lowering so that you actually do do something kind of... Uh-huh. That it's about that jerky feeling of, like feeling zero to feeling a hundred in a moment, yeah. you know what I mean? And yeah, that's just like a, te- that's a technical, that's a technical note, I guess. Or, and it's also about me trying to, you know, the, what the frame also helps us do is ground the themes of the original play in the present moment, right? Cause it's asking us in some ways to think of how far we've come or not come from these exact issues, which is mm-hmm. an obsession over racial identity and makeup, you know, a, society condoning the murder of another portion of that society, you know, the, what, what entertainment is, what does entertainment have to do with any of that? You know, these are all kind of mm-hmm. related to this idea of framing the history, framing the past or yeah. framing a, what's essentially a museum piece. I'm glad you mentioned how weird it is. And I want to get to that in a little bit. But I first, or maybe by way of this point, I know that Tennessee Williams is a playwright you feel a connection to. Obsessed, yeah, I'm obsessed with um, Tennessee Williams. Same. Mm-hmm. I wrote my MFA thesis on him. Oh, really? What did you, which, what did you write on? Um, I wrote about how uh, sort of the early political leanings of Williams. Mm-hmm. What? He's not political. Oh, my God. Those, you know, his early weird plays <laughs> were all like weird group theater knockoffs. Totally. And that's sort of, yeah. Because my, my whole idea was that a playwright starting out, even these like big, you know, legends, mm. when you're starting out and you're like 22, yeah. you figure out who's big around you and yeah. you follow that form. Yeah, exactly. So you have this, this like soul of a poet, like Williams is like, just wants to be poetic, right? Yeah. But he's like, oh, I, I, I get it. I'm in the 1930s. Everyone's doing political stuff. I'll do political stuff. Yeah, I'll talk about prisons. But yes. Like prison reform. I yeah. I love that place so yeah. much. What's it called? Not About Nightingales? Not About Nightingales. Yeah. One of my favorites ever. Yeah, and or Spring Storm. You yeah. Read that oh, my one? God, yes. No yeah. one else has read these. Well, last spring, you know, I, I, when I teach, I make my students read the collective work. Someone's last spring, we read literally all of Williams. It was insane. Very cool. We started with those early plays. Love it. Yeah. And then you basically see the, this poetic soul that wants to break out. I know. But you have to and, go through that uh, phase of apprentice to ship to really exactly so that was the whole thing yeah, yeah. so the reason why I'm intrigued by your kinship with Tennessee is because he's a writer who puts his soul into a character so mm-hmm. I see I read Blanche and I see Tennessee and mm-hmm. I read like Brick and Cat in a Hot Tin Roof and, and um, I told but I see him in Stella that's so interesting. Oh, that is. I, well, I see him in all. I mean, every you know, you, the secret is you're every character. That's yeah, what the, yeah, yeah. But sorry, but go ahead. I interrupt what you're saying. I think of what what interests me about that in light of your work is when I read your plays or see your plays, I see you observing the play happening, and it's a different perch. It's like it's a different writerly perch. Mm. And I wondered if you have had thoughts about 
that perspective, or if you disagree with my premise that you, in fact, are in the character. That's funny. I mean, I don't know if I feel... That's such interesting articulation. I, I mean, I don't feel... Um, I don't feel that my writing comes from an explicitly autobiographical impulse ever. I don't feel that I'm... That's what's so funny about BJJ is I feel like people talk... I think because of Octoroon's just sort of dissemination widely, I think people think that's me and then they meet me and they're confused, you know? Mm-hmm. And part of the game that I was playing was like, you know, you can't know... You're not going to know writer through their work. You know, that's not what the task of writing is about. But so that that's all to say, I don't find... I know there are a lot of artists who do write very closely to their lived experience or some idea of narrating their experience. And that's never been my interest. I don't know why. I can't tell you why. I think because I'm interested... I've always been drawn to the plays by people that feel almost... That they're just... That, that, that they're, they're a ghost in the machine or something. You know what I mean? That's why I like, love Euripides because mm-hmm. it's such an odd... All those plays kind of have that quality to me, and you know, I and I like I loved Glass Menagerie, but you are supposed to read him into Tom, even though that's not his biography. Sure, he's inviting that, and he's inviting you into that. And then there is something about it's so funny. I, I don't know. I, I guess I think I think of him as Stella because of his sister Rose is actually the one who gets carted away. And yeah, this is sort of whatever. But yeah, it, but the, he does kind of clearly have a like psychoanalytical relationship to the formations of his characters. Miller is exactly the same way. Like, I think that was really the pinnacle of that sort of work. Whereas I think I'm more interested in, I don't know, I guess I'm also very sensitive to how um, like instantly politicized I am just by being like a descendant of slaves, (laughs) you know, I feel like I'm constantly at battle with people's prejudice. So it's difficult to actually ever feel like um, I can put an uncomplicated version of myself on stage without people instantly wanting to project their own kind of misapprehensions or misjudgments about black people, full stop. You know what I mean? It's like, what's the point? <laughs> you know? And, that, and I, say that, I say that only kind of retrospectively. Like, I, weirdly, I am writing things now that are fussing with memory and my personal experience in a more specific way. I can't, I don't know if they're going to be played. I don't know if they are fully yet, but I know that early on I was never interested in, I didn't need to talk about myself. That wasn't the point. I was interested in talking about a relationship between people. You know what I mean? I see you also as being a perpetual student of theater in that I think different forms fascinate you and, who affects who, who affects who, who influences whom, mm, yeah. um, seems to fascinate you. And so I get the impression of when you're writing, just wanting to like excavate and build upon form and see what earlier form does when it merges with this form. And totally. It yeah. seems like because you approach it with this cerebral kind of vantage point, all of the personal stuff may or may not find like these pores to, mm, to get through yeah but the, the the mental exercise seems to be the starting point I think so yeah I mean and that's not to say that I don't, I don't draw on aspects of my biography I mean you definitely see that in appropriate like my family that is my exact family I mean that did not happen in our family but like my family collected and that kind uh-huh. of that family 
map of who those people are and how they relate to each other totally late like lays on top of my own family's map in some ways oh, fascinating. yeah or like but that's because I needed to pull from an idea of family in order to work within it so it's like well I have is my own you know or right. Gloria which is a play about work is set at originally at a magazine that resembles a magazine I used to work at but it's not about the magazine I worked at it's about sort of it was all I knew of work at that time and that's how I could talk about work do you know what I mean right. so it's there's like you even pull down the backdrop of a photo and you're yeah like, it's like all these things are I mean I think there's many materials that a writer can draw from and autobiography is one of them and but that doesn't necessarily mean that what you're doing is autobiographical work do you know what I mean that the sure. the telling of the story is not the telling of my life but it's about pulling from and this is what I tell my students all the time is that sculptors have rocks, painters have pigments, but writers just have like language and experience to draw on. And that's how you build what you build. Huh. So that's, that's kind of the school I come from, you know. Since you have been drawn to different, very old plays, The Octoroon, Every Man, which is a morality play, uh, The Bacchae, which I think is a coming up um, source material for girls. It, yeah, it just came, we just closed. But just yeah. happened, uh -huh, great. Yeah. Um, is there something about those old works that feel like beg to be improved upon? Or is it more that you're just a fan and want to see it revived mm. in a new, fresh way? Yeah, I don't think I ever... It's funny, my impulse when I'm adapting is never to improve. It's always to somehow translate its effects for the present. I'm always very saddened when I feel people treat old works like museum pieces that they're like these dead things and that theater is a dead form you know and part of what I want to do is say like no act you know with every man especially I was like no guys this is actually an amazing play this is how it this is how I think it would feel now to do it this is mm -hmm. the, the these are the strategies that we have that they didn't have and I think this is I think this is how the play would would feel if they could, if those people were alive now, that's what I, that was what that was about. And girls too, you know, I didn't quite nail girls the way I wanted to for a lot of different reasons, but you know, the Bacchae is like one of the most extraordinary plays ever. And, and people don't see that because they learn about it in school. It's written in Greek verse. They don't understand the references. But when you really kind of educate yourself on what that artists or those artists were trying to do in that moment, it blows my, I mean, it's, mo I'm so moved. They were making the same jokes we made. Hmm. They were, they were obsessing over sort of like what madness was, what, how thin was the relationship between perception and the imagination. And, you know, they were asking themselves like, what is theater for? What is the role that theater and, and ecstasy and celebration ritual play in a society? They were doing this. I mean, it's like crazy. You know, you're like, this is, this is what you know. We're always you always hear this like kind of cliche of like, I'm people are writing about what it means to be human or whatever. <laughs> they were actually doing that. That's you know what I mean. Like, we're still doing those that. same things. I That's love that play crazy. What? What it means to be. Oh human. Oh my god, yeah. But it's like what a non thing to say. But they actually were. <laughs> they were literally like, wait, hold on. We're humans. What if we use this weird form to figure out more about that? You and know? I think by taking that on and by finding so much rich source material, you're sort of inverting the, I don't want to study the dead white men. Sure, Which I yeah. think people in schools or theater companies um, rightly say to, in many degrees, like they want it to be new and to give living playwrights and to have it not only be white and all of these things that are valuable. Mm -hmm. So I think 
by sort of breathing new life into them, it allows these plays to be celebrated without it feeling weighed down by totally. the staleness. Because I always feel like the people who like want to cancel white canons are like losing the bead on the idea here, which is that whiteness is, is a historicized phenomenon. The Greeks did not run around calling themselves white. Do you know what I mean? So I'm not going to I'm not going to give up Euripides. So I do think that I, I do feel like I'm constantly making a case for like history being much different than the myths we receive about it, right? And having more value than the than the things that we tell ourselves about it. Do you know what I mean? Does yeah. that make sense? Can we talk about weirdness for a minute? Ah, oh, please. I love let's get weirder. <laughs> So, in Octoroon is weird, mm-hmm. and some of your other How plays. How dare you! <laughs> <laughs> you get one. You get one time. You can say that about me on this podcast. Okay. No I'm kidding. Go ahead. But I really, I like how bizarre it is because you. You're you're not sure if you're in the story or outside the story because especially in the scene where McCloskey. And George, uh, in the play, it's two white men, one of whom is sort of virtuous and one of whom is villainous. Mm-hmm. And uh, like the classic, and very much in the classic melodramatic sense, yeah. Mm-hmm. And they, it is played by one actor who gets into a fight with himself. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a, a like a fight club yep. type of moment. And it was so funny, but also like Zoe, the love interest, is... Is, is truly worried and it, it's like so serious and so hilarious and that was just so bizarre and um well yeah she played that character plays it straight yes. Zoe Zoe's all of Zoe's lines are Busico's lines she's the only character in my version who is actually in the melodrama you know right. the, the whole time yeah um and then there's that's just one of a bunch of things in an octoroon that's uh, either like a non sequitur to how you think the story's going or some other thing like that I bring this up because there's a new amazing show called Watchmen on HBO that you are a consulting <laughs> producer on. And that oh, is, uh, I mean, I'm loving it so far. And it's also so weird, but so compelling and so dramatic. And I wanted to hear your thoughts about creating the weirdness. Well, I have to confess that... Okay. I only worked on that show for about seven weeks, two okay. years ago. Well, <laughs> so I have no I doubt don't... you contributed the exact <laughs> element that I'm referring to. Which is what? Um, which is a scene where uh, Regina King's character is in a car as giant squids are falling. Like Oh, rain. hilarious. No, that was not me. But, <sighs> you know, no, no, no. That's really funny. I saw cuts of it over the summer. And it's definitely super weird. And that's definitely a product of, like, David Lindelhoff's vision. I mean, yeah. he's definitely, he's one of these, like, brilliant, weird, fiction-y kind of guys. I mean, he did Lost. He did Leftovers. I don't need to make, like, a case for David Lindelhoff's weird, yeah. you know. Um, but it's also, I, I think that's partly why I was drawn to that gig. And also I'm, like, vivid. I mean, Alan Moore, I'm, I'm obsessed with Alan Moore. I'm not, like, a gigantic graphic novel person, but I, like, I love Alan Moore. Um, And I think for me, there was this opportunity to like be, to really invest in Alan Moore's mind as an artist and kind of learn from the way, because he is all about manipulating genre too, right? That whole, the whole game of the original Watchmen comic book is that it's like a meta commentary on comic books Uh and what comic books are. 
and how they like are tied to like economic forces and sort of self-perception and imperialism essentially. Mm-hmm. It was seven crazy weeks of my life. I was like flying back and forth across the country and spending days sort of like imagining another world with a group of people, which was odd. And when you're asking people to like imagine another world, that's when it gets really, really weird. Like that's when you get people imagining squids falling out of the sky or like a production of Oklahoma that, you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. you did, these things are the things that come out and that is really kind of, that's really fun to me, you know, yeah, to piece together this this really popped the balloon for me. Really? That, that, that wasn't your idea. Oh, no. I'm seeing <laughs> now. I should have just said it was mine. But Well, no. it did feel like I could see the writer of Octoroon creating it. That is too funny. Because too funny. It's, it's so dramatic and so compelling and also so bizarre in certain ways. And it's sort of what it ultimately reveals, kind of like that magic eye effect, is that nothing is weirder than racism. Mm, Yeah. Like when you think about, besides how truly horrific it is, it is also so weird. It's really weird. It's just like a weird game. It has no basis in scientific fact. It's like never led to anything good ever. You know, it's like why we're vulnerable as a country, and yet people still play it. People still check a box on a form saying they're white, black, or not all because of these bizarre fictions that have no actual grounding in reality. Yes. You know? Ugh, I should have said that I, it was my idea. <laughs> Those squids were my idea. But they weren't. They, I, knew who, I know whose ideas they were. They were mine. <laughs> I know that you've spoken about a time in your life when things really flipped around. You got two writing grants, and Soho Rep took interest in the script of an Octoroon. And... Mm-hmm. And uh, you've spoken in other interviews about how the sort of confluence of those events made things turn around at a point when you weren't quite sure how your theater world, your career was going to evolve. Mm. And, and that's sort of like a, and that was history kind of moment. Like mm. now everything since then seemingly from my comfortable vantage point has been very smooth for you. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> well, it hasn't, but I'm glad that it appears that it's been very smooth. Uh, yeah. It's probably but a how sign. do you... How do you look back on on that now? Mm. It's, um, you know, I imagine that life is full of many hard patches, but that was definitely um, that period between leaving my job, having a show at the public that is like, you know, that leads to a lot of alienation from many institutions as well as the general press and also friends having to like run to Berlin, vowing never to come back, but coming back for an, uh, this show at PS122 that became, that was like a very public and like needlessly public and cruel kind of humiliation, you know? Um, I, I think it was, I think I did have to meet myself in some kind of interesting way. Like huh. I think I learned a lot about myself in that period that there, there can be, like, sudden kindness and generosity and relief and, mm. and care because, <clears throat> you know, I don't, I don't know if you know who Jim Houghton was. Jim, mm-hmm. who, yeah. Sure. Um, when he died, I, I found out, like, he had, like, single-handedly brought me back from the depths of hell, wow. you know, without my... And he never told me this until he... until I mean, It all came out after he died, but he just had decided mm. that he cared, you know, that he felt that there was that a wrong had been done to me and that I deserved 
you know, another chance. And that was, that's, that, that one person choosing, who didn't know me, feeling that way and acting the way he did, truly did change my life. You know what I mean? It's just bizarre. Like, I look back on that, I look back on that period as about, as being kind of a series of like guardian angels who, mm-hmm. who didn't have to tell, keep me going, but who both, who all said essentially keep me going. Like Melanie Joseph, who used to run the Foundry Theater, I remember once gave me some amazing advice I still give people where she's like, no one remembers anything that happens two years later. <laughs> like anything can happen to you in this field, but like you have to, you have to persevere. Like I think the biggest mistake people make is kind of giving up. You just have to be present and you have so you to like listen. You must feel so much gratitude. Oh, my whole life is a gratitude. My whole life is a gratitude. I mean, I feel I can't be more grateful in my life. I don't know what, you know, I, I truly do look at myself and I think like, what, how did this, how did this happen? I don't know how this happened. You know what I mean? And I guess on some level, I did a lot of work. I worked really hard, you know, but I've also just been very fortunate to have the support of kind of guardian angels and that's that's really what it's about you've talked about theater using words like ancient and magical mm-hmm. what do you think maintains that magic in the theater in the theater what maintains it well I think it's about um you have to imagine that we're all on this like crazy long chain of people going back thousands and thousands of years and we're all passing this like delicate pot down the line you know what I mean and like now we're all holding this old crappy pot you know but we have to make sure there's someone ready to take it on right Mm -hmm. and that's that's when it becomes and we have to inspire someone to come next to us and take it on you know so I think about that that somehow it's about like that's what the history thing is about it's like remembering like how what a miracle it is that like we have this thing that we do together that can provide such pleasure and comfort and joy and stimulate us and educate us and unite us and cause us to question what an amazing tool we've inherited, you know, and how can we like always honor the tool and the making of it? And you know what I mean? That's partly, partly what it is. And it's also about, you know, remembering that it's your obligation to make it new. um, Basically, you know, it's our obligation to kind of constantly make sure, keep, you know, keep, keep it, refreshed and, and useful to the present in every way that we can. We have to do that. It's literally a tool we as a species have created to help us understand ourselves and understand how to live better or something. You know what I mean? Brandon, thank insane? you so much okay. for talking with me. <laughs> yeah, I'm so excited to listen to this. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Likewise. I'm, what an amazing podcast. Did you, oh, you stopped it? Oh, okay. No, no, I, that was rushed along. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow Places Everyone on Twitter. Podcast production and original music by Cody Crabb. Artwork by Jennifer Klockner. See you next time.